I invite you to open your Bibles or your tablets, whatever devices you use, to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. It is the focus of our study this morning as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. Here's what we read. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them Not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. When I was a young boy, I had a great deal of questions, just a lot of questions that I was asking because I was extremely inquisitive to the point that at times my questions actually frustrated my dad simply because he couldn't answer them. But questions are important because they are the gateway to our learning. It's good to ask questions. That's how we learn. However, I want to call your attention to a question that Jesus asked his apostles, found in the verses I just read to you, a question that if any of us asked this question, it would be wrong. It would be totally inappropriate and it would be the evidence of a serious problem with sinful pride. The question I'm referring to is found in verse 18 where we read that Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? In other words, he asked his disciples what people were saying about him, what they thought about him. Now, as I said, if we asked someone a question like that, it would be wrong because it would reveal that we cared too much about ourselves. We thought too much about what others think concerning us. It would demonstrate an unhealthy and a sinful self-focus and self-absorption to be that obsessed with what others were thinking about us. But for Jesus to ask this question about what people thought concerning him, who they thought he was, it was not only appropriate, it was not only the right question, it was the most important question he could ever ask, and it is the most important question anyone could ever be asked. Why? Because our entire eternity depends upon answering this question correctly. Concerning just how important this question actually is, one Bible teacher said this, he said, but who do you say that I am introduces the most critical issue facing any person, the question of Jesus' identity. Where people spend eternity either in heaven or in hell depends on answering it correctly. Humanistic philosophy and secularism, as well as peculiar theological systems, cults, and false religions inevitably reject the truth concerning the nature and work of Jesus. The number of books, articles, papers, symposiums, lectures, and discussions advocating a false identity concerning Jesus Christ is seemingly endless. That plethora of supposedly scholarly and religious efforts to discover who Jesus is surely suggests to some that the question is a very complex, perhaps even unsolvable one. In reality, however, it is only difficult for those who reject the clear revelation of the Bible. Now, this isn't the first time. This isn't the first time that the question of Jesus' identity has been raised in the Gospel of Luke. Back in chapter 8, verse 25, after Jesus had calmed that violent storm on the Sea of Galilee, we read that the disciples said to one another, who then is this 
that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Again, the question of our Lord's identity came up in Luke chapter 9, verse 9, when Herod the Tetrarch said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And though Herod was obviously confused as to Christ's identity, Luke actually begins to answer Herod's question concerning who Jesus is by immediately telling us about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, implying by this demonstration of Christ's creative power that he is God the creator. However, What was only implied in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is explicitly stated here by the apostles when in response to a second question that Jesus asked them, asking who they thought he was, Peter, speaking for all 12 of them, said, you are the Christ of God. Now, there's nothing vague, there's nothing ambiguous about this statement. It is a clear declaration and affirmation that these men who knew Jesus better than anybody else, they believed him to be Israel's Messiah, the one promised by God in the Old Testament scriptures. So as we come to this passage in Luke's gospel, as students of the Bible, we want to ask questions. That's what Bible students do. They ask questions about the text. We want to ask the question, why did Jesus ask his men, these two questions. Why? The two questions being, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? And then why did he ask these two questions at this particular time, this particular point in his ministry? And the answer, folks, to all of this is because the time of his crucifixion was drawing closer, prompting him to intensify the training, the discipleship of his apostles in order to prepare them for their future ministry. And therefore, it was necessary that they understand not only who he was, the Messiah, but what kind of a Messiah he was, one who would be betrayed, one who would be arrested, one who would be flogged, one who would then be executed, and one who would then be raised up on the third day. You see, although Luke often presents his material along the lines of themes and subjects rather than chronological order, there is a timeline here. The timeline for this passage in chapter 9 is about two and a half years into Christ's ministry. And so for about two and a half years, Jesus has been spending time mostly in the area of Galilee, teaching his 12 apostles who he is by his supernatural miracles, his authoritative teaching, his perfect life, his disciples have been given countless lessons, all designed to impress upon them the great truth that Jesus of Nazareth is none other than the divine king, the Messiah. And now with his arrest and his crucifixion only about six months away, Jesus now brings his Galilean ministry to a close. And so, and you'll see this as we continue in weeks and months and who knows, perhaps years to come, our study in Luke, you'll see that Jesus leaving Capernaum in Galilee, he begins his journey, the journey that will end in Jerusalem where he will be arrested, he will be tried, and he will be crucified. And so knowing all of this, knowing all of this, Jesus decides that the time has come to give his men, as John MacArthur calls it, their final exam. 
which consists really of only one question. The question, who do you say that I am? In other words, in light of what other people are saying about me, I want you, I want you to tell me who you think that I am. And then, as I've already mentioned, acting as spokesman for all the apostles, Peter says in the fuller version, which is found in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 16, verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, although this was a remarkable confession by Peter, you should know that this wasn't the first time that one of Christ's disciples had confessed him to be the Messiah as well as the Son of God. Two and a half years prior to this, upon first meeting Jesus, Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel all made similar confessions. So, for example, we read in John chapter 1, verse 41, we read concerning Andrew, who was the brother of Simon Peter, we read, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. And then just a few verses later in John chapter 1 verse 45, we read that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. In other words, the Messiah. And again in John chapter 1 verse 49, we read that upon meeting Jesus, Nathanael answered him with these words, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. So Peter wasn't the first disciple, he certainly wasn't the only disciple, or I should say, or even the first disciple to confess that Jesus was Messiah and son of God. So then the question is, why is Peter's confession considered so special? Listen closely. It's because Peter's confession was based upon years of observing Jesus. And it contained a depth of conviction and a sense of assurance and certainty that wasn't true of others at the beginning of Christ's ministry. You see, these statements by Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel, who became apostles, these statements by them, they occurred several years earlier when they had first initially met Jesus and their understanding and their expectations of the Messiah were very different back then. It's very likely that like so many people in Israel at that time, they had misconceptions of the Messiah and expected him to be simply a political, earthly, military ruler, one who would violently overthrow the Roman government and set the Jewish people free from Gentile oppression. So when at first they declared Jesus to be the Messiah and the Son of God, it was based on a very shallow and a rather faulty view of the Messiah. However, after being with him for a little less than three years and seeing no indication that he was a political Messiah who was going to overthrow Rome's rule, Jesus was asking them who they thought he was now. Now, in other words, you have heard me teach, you have witnessed my many miracles, you have observed my life. Do you still think that I'm the Messiah in spite of failing to fulfill your initial expectations? What do you think of me now? Now that you know I'm not the one who's going to overthrow Rome. That's not my mission. Therefore, what makes Peter's confession so special here in Luke chapter 9 verse 20 is that what he says about Jesus is based upon years of observing and listening to the Lord. Listen, these men knew Christ better than anybody else. For nearly three years, they were with him almost all the time. They ate with him. They interacted with him. They heard him teach. They saw him interact with others. They slept right by him. It was 24-7. They knew him 
So after years of observing him and listening to the Lord and not based upon messianic expectations and misconceptions, they make, Peter the spokesman for them, makes this great confession. By this time, Peter has had all the opportunities to hear all the other opinions circulating in Israel about Jesus. The hostile, negative reactions of the Pharisees who accused the Lord of being blasphemous and, and even demonic. The apathy of many in Galilee who saw Christ's miracles and were simply indifferent. They didn't care. The enthusiasm of others who viewed Jesus as only a great miracle worker and nothing more. Peter and the apostles even saw the anger of the people of Christ's hometown of Nazareth who, who actually tried to kill him. And Peter has even heard the great John the Baptist express his momentary doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet, after hearing all of these various views about Jesus, Peter has come to his own conclusion about him. Now, we know this conclusion was based on divine revelation as God has worked in his heart. But Peter has thought this through. And he's come to his own conclusion about him in light of giving careful consideration to all that Jesus has done and said up to this point. His conclusion and his belief with conviction is that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And folks, this is precisely the place where the Lord has been moving all of his apostles. He's wanted them and he's moved them in this direction and they're there to be convinced that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. And as you'll recall, starting with the death of John the Baptist, which signaled that his own death wasn't far off, Jesus then entered a new phase of his ministry as he retreated from the public eye in order to spend more time alone with his apostles so that he could train and disciple them. He's been moving them to this point, but it started with the death of John the Baptist. And as I've already pointed out to you, he's done this for the simple reason that the end of his ministry was in sight. It's about six months away, and therefore he needs to get these men ready for life without his physical presence. And you can see for yourself that his upcoming sufferings and death, that's what's on his mind. That's what's driving him. That's what's playing a key role in intensifying his training of the apostles. He's turned the notch up a bit now. Notice what Jesus said right after Peter confessed that he was the Messiah. Notice Luke chapter 9 verses 22 and 23. The son of man, Jesus said, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And then he followed that up by saying in verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, take up your cross as I take up my cross and follow me. He's thinking about his death. And so with his impending death on his mind and his need to prepare his disciples to be certain of who he is, Jesus decides to question the apostles about his identity. And he does this by asking them only two questions, with the first one being, who do people say that I am? It's found in verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, who do people say that I am? Now Luke begins this passage by telling us that just before the Lord questioned his men on what others were thinking about him, Luke tells us that he was praying. He was praying. He was spending time in prayer alone with God 
the Father, something he did quite often because he needed the Father to constantly strengthen him, to constantly encourage him in light of all the difficulties and challenges of his life and ministry. And the New Testament reveals that the Lord would often spend time in prayer just before a major event was about to take place. So that we read that he prayed just before his baptism and just before choosing the 12 apostles. And now, Luke tells us, now we read that Jesus was praying just before asking these two important questions to his apostles. Now what exactly the Lord was was praying about, Luke doesn't reveal that to us. But it may very well be that he was asking the Father to use these questions to bring firm conviction, a sense of certainty and and assurance to his men, a confidence concerning his identity. Because as we've already observed when we studied about the feeding of the 5,000, these these guys could be really thick, really slow, really dense, to dull, to just grasp the truth about Jesus. They were not, as we say, the sharpest knives in the drawer. But These men were trained by Jesus and he's slowly bringing them along and they will get it because the Father will reveal the truth to them. Now Luke tells us that although Jesus was praying alone, his disciples were with him, meaning that they were nearby, they were in the vicinity. And so after praying, he turned to them and asked them his first question, who do people say that I am? Now, in Matthew's fuller account of this passage, we're told several things that help us to better understand the meaning of this question posed by Jesus to his men. Matthew 16, verse 13 reads this way. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Matthew tells us two things that Luke does not include in his gospel record. First of all, Matthew tells us that Jesus asked this question while he and his disciples were in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And that's very significant. And its significance certainly would not have been lost on the apostles. So let me explain. Caesarea Philippi was a predominantly Gentile area located about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It was near the foot of the majestic Mount Hermon. I have been to this area and I would concur it is one of the most beautiful locations in all of Israel. It's actually not far from the border of Lebanon. But in Christ's day, Caesarea Philippi was noted for its religious paganism. And it had temples all around dedicated to the heathen gods scattered throughout the area. Many of them being temples and shrines dedicated to the worship of the false god Baal. In addition, there was a well-known temple dedicated to the Greek god Pan, the god of nature. In fact, today this area, though now it is located within the borders of Israel, is not called Caesarea Philippi. You can look on a map, it's not called that. It is called Banyas, which is the Arabic pronunciation of Panyas, and that's a name related to the ancient god Pan. Also in Caesarea Philippi at this time was a great white marble temple built to the glory of the Roman Emperor Caesar. In fact, that's where the city in Christ's day actually got its name. Philip, one of the sons of Herod the Great, who ruled at that time over the city, called the place Caesarea, meaning Caesar's town. And then he added 
to Caesarea his own name, Philippi, in order to distinguish this Caesarea in the north from the town by the same name of Caesarea located on the Mediterranean Sea. Now don't miss the significance of all this because this is quite important. As Jesus and his disciples have come into the district of Caesarea Philippi observing looking all around, seeing all kinds of temples dedicated to the many false gods of the area that were worshipped there, the true God, the true Lord of glory, asks his men to tell him who people think he is. In other words, they could see by the many temples that they were passing what the people of this area thought of Baal, what they thought of Pan, what they thought of Caesar, What Jesus is interested in hearing is what people are saying about him. Now the second bit of information that Matthew tells us that is not found in Luke's account is that in asking his disciples to tell him what people were saying about him, he specifically refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is a messianic title. It's a very messianic title. It's based on Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which speaks of Messiah reigning over his kingdom. The Son of Man is an expression that's actually mentioned over 80 times in the New Testament in reference to the Messiah. But while it normally refers to the Messiah, in this context... In Matthew's account, it appears that Jesus was simply using it as a way of identifying himself in his humanity rather than the divine glory of his messianic office. So when Jesus asked, who do people say that the Son of Man is, it appears he simply is asking, who do people think I am? In fact, that appears to be the obvious point because both Luke and Mark, in their gospel accounts, they record Jesus as saying, who do people say that I am? They leave out the Son of Man. Now, the people that Jesus had in mind when he said, who do the people say? The people he was referring to were not those who were antagonistic and hostile towards him, like the religious leaders of Israel. It was common knowledge what the people, like the Pharisees and the scribes, thought of him. They felt he was a messianic fraud. They felt he was even satanic. No, the people that Jesus had in mind were those we would call the general public, the typical man on the street, the vast masses, the multitudes of people who followed him around Israel, people who were not committed to him as disciples, but they went everywhere. They wanted to see him. They wanted to be by him. He wanted to know what they were saying about him, what these folks thought of him. He wanted to know what the people who were not negative towards him but saw him in a positive religious light who they thought that he was. Now before we hear the disciples tell Jesus who people thought he was, we need to understand that Jesus didn't ask this question because he was ignorant, because he was lacking in understanding. He knew exactly what people were saying about him. Why? Because he's God. And being God, he is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. The Lord never has to learn a thing. You can't teach him anything. He knows it all. See, the reason that Jesus asked his disciples this question, even though he already knew the answer, was because he wanted them, his apostles, to give careful consideration to what others were saying about him in order, note this, in order to draw out of them what they really believed about him. In other words, this question was a natural lead-in to asking them who they thought he was. So having asked 
what the typical man on the street was saying about him, returning to Luke chapter 9, verse 19, we read that this is what they told him. Verse 19, they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. Now the disciples respond to Jesus by telling him that there is no consensus amongst the people as to who they thought he was. There's just varying opinions that people out there have about you. It told him that the people didn't agree. So there's no one answer to give him. Some, they said, felt that he was John the Baptist, meaning that he was a resurrected John the Baptist. He's John the Baptist raised from the dead. You might recall that this is exactly who Herod believed Jesus was because in Matthew 14, verses 1 and 2, we read at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others, they said, others speculate that Jesus is the Old Testament prophet Elijah who's returned from heaven. Remember, Elijah never died. He was just translated, transported to heaven. Now, why would they think this? Why would they think that Jesus was Elijah? Well, they thought this because Elijah was associated with announcing the Messiah's arrival on earth since the Old Testament closes with Malachi 4, verse 5, saying that God is going to send Elijah before, and I quote, the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. In fact, it is still customary for Jewish people today in celebrating the feast of Passover to have an empty seat at the table in anticipation that Elijah will enter their homes to tell them that the Messiah is about to arrive. And so growing up, it was my responsibility when my family celebrated Passover to open the door of our home, our apartment, to see if Elijah was there to let him in. I never understood why I had to do this, but every year I did this, and every year he wasn't there. There was nobody there. It seemed to me a little silly, but I would have to do it. Open the door. Okay, close the door. Go back, sit down, and eat. So, some in Christ's day thought that instead of Jesus being the Messiah, they believed that he was Elijah who had come from heaven to announce the arrival of the Messiah. So what they thought about him is that he was the forerunner to the Messiah. And still others, the apostles said, they believed that Jesus was a different Old Testament prophet. Because in Matthew's account of this verse, he says that some thought that Jesus was the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah raised to life, resurrected from the dead. Now, why would some single out a resurrected Jeremiah as the identity of Jesus? Well, we're simply not told, but one suggestion is that based on a popular Jewish tradition, many people of that day believed that Jeremiah had taken the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense from the temple and he had hidden these items during the time of Jerusalem's destruction by the Babylonians. However, just before the Messiah arrived, according to this tradition, it's not in the Bible, it's just the tradition, their belief was that Jeremiah would come again and he would return these objects to the temple. And so once again, instead of seeing Jesus as the Messiah, like those who believed that he was Elijah, some believed that he was Jeremiah who would come before the arrival of the Messiah. 
And finally, the disciples tell Jesus that there are still other people out there. Instead of going out on a limb and speculating as to which prophet he would be, they don't know. They don't know. Instead, they just believe that he must be one of the Old Testament prophets returned to earth, but they don't know which one. They're not going to name one. Now, interestingly, the interesting thing about all of these beliefs about Jesus is that none of them represented any antagonism or any hostility towards Christ, but nevertheless, they were all wrong about him. Notice that the one thing that all of these public opinions of Jesus had in common is that all of these people believed he was a prophet of God who came before the Messiah. That's the one thing that all these beliefs held in common. Now, they meant this, understand, they meant this as a great compliment. This isn't a negative from their standpoint. They meant this as a great compliment because they held these prophets in high esteem as men of God, but none of them held Jesus in the highest esteem by believing that he was the Messiah. Now, folks, this is a critically important issue for each of us to consider because there are millions and millions of people today who also hold Jesus in high esteem but believe that he was nothing more than a prophet. They're called Muslims because the religion of Islam officially embraces Jesus as a prophet of God but not as God. And there are many other people today who are not overtly hostile towards Christ and actually have very positive attitudes towards Jesus of Nazareth, viewing him in a good light. Some see him as this great moral and ethical teacher, others as a very wise and learned Jewish rabbi, and still others consider him to be the epitome of genuine spirituality. And frankly, all of these views that consider Jesus to be a good man, perhaps even the best and the most noble man who's ever lived, are not only wrong, but they're foolish. They're foolish and they're illogical and they're proven to be foolish and illogical when one really sits down and thinks through the issues. Years ago, literary scholar C.S. Lewis did sit down and think this thing through and here's what Lewis said. He said, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. What he's referring to is Jesus claiming that he was God. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and he's the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. But listen, having the wrong view about Jesus isn't simply foolish and illogical. It's more than that. It's extremely dangerous. And it's dangerous because regardless of what positive things a person might think about Jesus, if they don't see him as God in human flesh, then they are lost in their sins and therefore are in danger of eternal judgment. 
This is precisely why the Apostle Paul said these magnificent words in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul says that only faith in Jesus as Lord, not a good man, but Lord, will bring about salvation from sin because only those who believe that Jesus is Lord can understand the meaning of the cross and the cross is the key to salvation. You see, in order to forgive us of our sins, it necessitated that God's holy and righteous justice be satisfied by the acceptable payment for our sins and since only he himself, God himself was qualified to make that eternal, infinite and perfect sacrifice, he... He became a man so that he could die in the place of sinners as their substitute. This is why it's so important that you personally, you personally believe that Jesus was more than a prophet, more than a good man, more than a wise rabbi. He was and is absolute deity and yet absolute humanity. Now, I wonder if any of you here today, or perhaps those of you who are watching on live stream, are like the general population of Christ's day. You have nothing but positive feelings about Jesus, yet you don't see him as the sovereign Lord of the universe, the one who you must submit to, the one who you must surrender your life to. And That's a dangerous place. If you're there and have not surrendered your life to Christ, it's a dangerous place to be because just believing that Jesus was a good man or even a prophet, it just won't cut it with God. There are many people on this planet who are lost and on their way to hell who believe good things about Jesus, but they don't know his real identity. And so going back to Luke 9, we see that Jesus has purposely He's asked his disciples what the general public thought about him, who they thought he was. But as I've told you, he did this as a natural lead-in to ask them what they thought about him. And so as Luke continues unfolding the passage, he tells us that Jesus, having asked the apostles who others thought he was, he now asks them his second question, which is, who do you say that I am? Verse 20, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Now this question was posed, as you can see, to all the disciples, all the apostles, but as usual, impetuous Peter took the lead and spoke on behalf of all of them. And although the text doesn't explicitly say this, there may have been, well, may have been an awkward pause by the disciples, a momentary silence amongst them, before Peter spoke up. And I say that because in response to our Lord's previous question about what others thought of him, all the disciples appear to have chimed in and and answered immediately and then somewhat in unison. But in response to this question and what they believed about him, this wasn't the case. No one spoke up except Peter, even though all the apostles believed exactly the same thing about him. And so Peter, who certainly, as we know, wasn't shy, he was not an introvert, he often spoke without thinking, he often was very impetuous, but in this case, he did think, and he gave a wonderful answer, which has gone down, folks, in history as the most memorable and excellent of all confessions ever given about Jesus. In the fuller accounts in Matthew's gospel, Matthew records Peter as saying in chapter 16, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Now, with these brief words, Peter said exactly what Jesus wanted to hear because what Peter said was the truth. It was the truth about him. First, notice he called him the Christ, which contrary to what many people believe, and I've said this many times here, it was not the Lord's last name. The term Christ is from the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. It's the word Christos, and it literally means the anointed one. So what Peter was actually saying to Jesus, you are the anointed one, the son of the living God. Now the word Christ or Messiah, or as it said in Hebrew, Mashiach, was primarily used in the Old Testament to describe kings and priests and prophets. Because why? Because these men were anointed with oil in consecration for their service to the Lord. So they were known as the anointed ones. However, in time, the term anointed one or Messiah came to be associated in the minds of the Jewish people with only one king. One king in particular, and that was King David, to whom God promised in what's known as the Davidic Covenant, God promised that one of his descendants, one of his sons, would come overthrow Israel's enemies and sit upon his throne, David's throne, and reign righteously over his people. And so in time, the concept of the Christ was that of a long-awaited king from the line of David who would be just like David both in the sense that he would be triumphant over Gentile adversaries and righteous in the way he ruled over the Jewish people. But Peter said something more about Jesus. Not only did he call him the Christ, meaning the promised human descendant of David, but he also said that Jesus was divine. He said that he was deity in human flesh. Notice he called him the son of the living God. The son of the living God. In other words, Peter is saying in contrast to all of those false dead gods that are worshipped here in Caesarea, Philippi, we believe, we believe that you are the true God, the son of God who is alive and not a dead idol. That's why it's significant that this took place in Caesarea, Philippi. That's how you understand this against this background. You are the son of the living God. These are dead gods. You are the son of the living God. See, even though at this point, Peter and the rest of the apostles, they didn't fully comprehend the necessity of Jesus being God. They didn't understand about his death on the cross, that it would pay an infinite price for sin. Nonetheless, they still believed the truth about him. They still believed that he was full deity. They didn't understand why that was so significant, but they understood who he was. In fact, based on Peter's answer, it certainly appears that he understood the meaning of Psalm 2, which I read to you earlier, which brings together the dual concept of the Messiah being the Son of God. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 7 say this, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they take their stand again, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He scoffs at them because so ridiculous fighting against God Almighty. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The anointed one, the Messiah, is also the son, the son. Now what strikes me as so unusual 
about Peter's belief in Christ is that it was just so different from that of the general population. Do you see that? The majority of people believed that Jesus was simply a prophet, a prophet who would announce the arrival of Messiah. But Peter said that he was the Messiah, he was the Son of God. See, Peter was not afraid to disagree with his peers. He wasn't afraid to disagree with the popular view of his day about Jesus. He didn't hesitate to be in the minority view. Just as you and I should never be intimidated by believing in Jesus as God, even though most people in our culture not only would reject that, the deity of Christ, they would mock it. They would scoff it. They would think that we don't have brains to consider something like this. But remember this, the majority never determines what is the truth. God alone determines what is truth. And the truth is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God in human flesh, regardless of what anybody else believes. And so having made this great confession, Peter and the other apostles, you know what? They passed the final exam. They got it right. They got the answer right. Jesus is the Messiah of God. Therefore, one, at this point, one would have expected that Jesus, upon hearing Peter say the truth about him, you got it right, Peter, one would have expected Jesus to send out his disciples all over Israel, go tell the people the truth about me, because you know it, and they need to know it. I'm not the forerunner of the Messiah, I am the Messiah, so correct them. But he didn't do that. Instead of sending them out to tell others that he was the Messiah, Jesus did something that must have shocked the apostles. He forbid them, forbid them from telling anyone that he was the Messiah. Notice what we read in verse 21. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Luke tells us that immediately after Peter made this incredible confession of Christ, that Jesus not only warned them, but notice it says he instructed them. This word instructed means he commanded them. It's a strong word. It means he ordered them like a military officer ordering those under him to just stand down and not tell others who he was. In other words, Jesus made it very clear that he was insisting He was just insistent that they keep quiet and not tell others that he was the Messiah. And so we read this and we say, why? Why not? Why would the Lord not want others to know his true identity as Israel's Messiah? Well, there is a good reason for this. The reason is because the Jewish people of that day and age so hated the Roman government and so longed to be delivered from their oppression, that folks, they would have followed anyone who claimed to be the Messiah. Anybody. In fact, later in history, they did follow false messiahs and uh, suffered greatly in trying to overthrow Rome. So if the apostles had started proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, the people then, they would have interpreted this to mean he was merely an earthly political Messiah who had come to save them from being politically oppressed. They would have risen up against Rome and many of them would have been slaughtered and killed. That's not at all who Jesus was. He was not a political Messiah who had come to rescue them from the tyranny of Rome. 
He was, note this, he was the suffering Messiah who had come to rescue them from the tyranny of their sin by dying on the cross as a substitute sin bearer. And that's exactly, note this, this is exactly why Jesus proceeded in verse 22 to tell his apostles these words, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up the third day. Jesus very clearly declared what kind of Messiah he was. Not an earthly, political, military Messiah, but a suffering Messiah who must, meaning that this word must means it's an absolute necessity that could not be changed because this was God's sovereign will decree for him. He must suffer. He must be rejected by the religious leadership of Israel and he must be killed and then he must be raised from the dead on the third day. Everything that Psalm 22 said would happen. Jesus said it must happen. Everything that Isaiah 53 predicting his death and resurrection must happen. You see what Jesus was doing was telling his men what he would soon be experiencing in just a few months. He was going to suffer by being betrayed by Judas, beaten and spit upon by the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, and then flogged by the Romans. He would suffer. Then he was going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, meaning that after putting him on trial, it was a kangaroo court, but it was a trial, and hearing his claims of being the Messiah, they would decide against him. They would reject him. And then he would be killed as the Jewish leaders would hand him over to the Romans to crucify him. But he would not remain dead. He would be raised up by the Father on the third day as a testimony to the fact that the Father had accepted his eternal sacrifice on behalf of sinners and also declared him to be the Son of God. This is the kind of Messiah Jesus wanted the people of Israel to know that he was, not a political Messiah but one who would suffer and die on the cross for sinners. This is the message, folks, that the apostles would eventually, eventually proclaim to others about him. They would take this message to the world, but it would have to wait until after his death and after his resurrection and then after his ascension. For right now, Jesus strictly forbid his men from telling others that he was the Messiah because it would just be so misunderstood and would lead to horrible things. However, what Peter and the others believed about Jesus, that was absolutely correct. He was, he is the Messiah of God and soon others would know in just about half a year, others would know what kind of Messiah he was. Now it's been over 2,000 years that our Lord's followers have been proclaiming the truth about Jesus all over the world, not only through full-time missionaries, but through God's people who live in those lands. Christ's disciples are telling others, he is the Messiah who died on behalf of sinners. He is the Son of God who died on behalf of sinners. Peter and the apostles believe this. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe, as the 12 did, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, which means he is God himself. He's not simply a son in a lesser sense. He is fully God. He is God himself. He is God the Son. This is the most important question you'll ever be asked. Who do you think Jesus Christ is? 
Listen closely, because it is quite possible to have the correct answer to this question, to have the correct answer theologically and intellectually to know exactly who Jesus is. You could pass the final exam and even believe that he died on the cross to save sinners. And yet still, with all of that, you could still have no relationship with him, no affection for him, no warmth towards him, no salvation from him. It's very possible. So you might wonder, well, how is that possible? Well, that's exactly the kind of belief in Christ that Satan and his demons had about Jesus during his earthly ministry. They believed in him because they knew who he was. Writing about their knowledge, Satan and his demons about Jesus, R.C. Sproul wrote this. He said, Satan knew during Jesus' entire earthly ministry that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God and as much as he understood that intellectually, he hated it passionately. He knew who Jesus was but was not interested in following him only in destroying him. In the biblical record, the first personages who recognized the deity of Christ behind the hidden veil of his humanity were the demons from hell. So for them, it wasn't a problem of a lack of knowledge of his identity. It was a lack of affection for the one who was the son of God. So I ask you this morning, do you have any affection for the son of God? Have you welcomed Christ into your life? Have you received him as your Lord, as your Savior, have you opened your heart to Him? Have you placed your trust in Him for salvation? Because it's possible that you believe the right things about Him, but you've never believed on Him. To believe on Him means that you turn away, you repent from anything that you know is displeasing to God in your life, and you turn to Christ, and you place your confidence, your trust in Him to save you, and Him alone to save you. Not your good works in Him, not the church in Him, not your baptism in Him, but Him alone. If you've never experienced this, if you've never opened your heart to Christ and you just know intellectually about him, then make today the day of your salvation. We have some of our pastors who come up to the front as we close and they'll be happy to speak to you about Christ, about knowing him. Make sure you don't just know about him, but you know him. Let's pray. Let's join our hearts and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture, so enlightening, Lord. We say with Peter, we say with the apostles, we believe in you, Lord, that you are the Son of God, you are the Messiah, you are God in human flesh. And yet, Lord, my heart breaks for those perhaps in our congregation sitting here or people who are watching live stream who know all about you, who listen to sermon after sermon, who have accumulated a lot of knowledge about you, but they've never actually come to the point in their lives where they're convicted of their sin, so much so that they turn from their sin and call upon you to to save them. I pray that that would change today. I pray that some would truly be saved, truly call upon Christ for salvation, would stop just intellectually knowing the truth, but would open their hearts to Jesus himself. And Lord, I pray for those of us who do know you strengthen our faith. It's a a wicked world we live in. We're mocked for our faith. We're looked down upon for our faith as people who are ignorant and naive and without knowledge. And it takes courage. It It takes boldness to walk with you. I pray that you'll help us to do that, to be loving to those who reject you to be winsome in our witness and to be faithful to you in proclaiming the gospel of Christ and proclaiming you, Lord, as Lord.
In Jesus' name, your name, Lord, we pray this. Amen.